Hello, and welcome to Never the Twins Shall Meet, a podcast hosted by twin sisters, separated by distance, but united by nerdiness. I'm your host, Lulu. And I'm your co-host, Pi. It has been such a long time since we recorded. I'm a little bit ashamed. I, I feel like I've said this a number of times this year, that we've taken longer breaks than we intended between episodes, but this one I feel like really takes the cake. Because it turns out that being a senior in college is a little bit like being on a treadmill that is either making you run or sprint, which leaves very little time for podcasting. But we are hopefully going to carve out some more time for episodes this fall. So we are back in the podcasting seat. We will be podcasting and we are here today to actually sit down and continue podcasting instead of just living our lives. So that's exciting. Is there anything that you've been into or up to lately that you want to highlight before we start talking about the proper episode, Pi? Well, like you, I have been having a very busy fall since I'm also a senior in college and I have been into and up to a lot of things. But in terms of media that I've been enjoying lately, there has definitely been some stuff that I've been particularly enjoying. So I watched the TV show The Rings of Power, which is the new Lord of the Rings TV show, which is a slightly weird experience as someone who is a very big Tolkien nerd and has read The Silmarillion to be watching the show and being like, why are you not mentioning this character or this piece of lore or this entire historical event? Oh, right. It's because you don't have the rights to it, I guess. Uh, But I did find it to be a fairly enjoyable show. I have a lot of nostalgia for the Lord of the Rings movies, so it was kind of fun to watch something with similar vibes. Also, I watched it with a friend who is similarly a big Tolkien nerd, and so we spent eight weeks frantically trying to unpack which character was secretly Sauron in disguise, and we were correct, so I feel kind of smug about that, and overall had an enjoyable experience with it. I also have been watching, actually just recently finished watching the first season of the Game of Thrones prequel series House of the Dragon, which unfortunately has dragged me kicking and screaming back into caring about A Song of Ice and Fire, which is just like something that happens to me every couple of years. So I watched that. It's a TV show about House Targaryen being absolutely appalling and making terrible life choices and having the worst family dinners and the worst romantic drama and also having gigantic dragons on top of all of it. So I'm not going to talk about it too much because Lulu does not watch the show, does not care about it, but I enjoyed it very much and it catered to my love of Song of Ice and Fire and also horrible people having a horrible time. I also read a lot of really good books recently, and I'll mention two of them. One is Sister Song by Lucy Holland, which is a retelling of the old folk ballad, The Two Sisters, about two sisters who quarrel over the love of a suitor and then one kills the other one. And it's a retelling that's set in post-Rome Britain in the era of like the Britons and the Anglo-Saxons and kind of like the coming of Christianity and the fading of the old gods. So there was a lot of really interesting stuff about magic and changing histories and changing power structures, while also being a retelling of a folk ballad that I've always found really interesting. So I enjoyed that a lot. I am obsessed with post-Rome Britain as a time period, and I really, really want to do an episode on it. So I feel like we might end up talking about Sister Song more in depth at some point in the coming weeks. So if you also want to hear about Christianity versus paganism and Romans and Anglo-Saxons, you could stay tuned for that. I'm also currently reading Only a Monster by Vanessa Lynn, which is a young adult fantasy novel about 
Joan, a regular teenager living in London who discovers that her family is actually a group of time-traveling monsters and that the cute boy she has a crush on is a hero sworn to kill all monsters. It's a really good book. There's a super interesting exploration of like monstrosity and the terrifyingness of righteous heroes and time travel and kind of like morally ambiguous characters and cool world building. I've been enjoying it a lot and I'm only about halfway through it. So I think it's going to be possibly a top book of the year when I'm done with it. Also, I got COVID recently, which I am still kind of mad about. I'm feeling much better than I was uh, last week, but I'm, I'm still a little bit mad that I managed to get that even though I was still masking. I was pretty sick for a few days and had a lot of very vivid fever dreams about Anglo-Saxon battles, which I am going to place the blame squarely on Sister Song and also my medieval literature class for that. But luckily I'm feeling better and I'm up to podcasting these days. So have you been into or up to anything lately? I have been up to so many things lately. I have been teaching a class on Irish mythology and chopping lots of vegetables and learning burlesque, but none of that is particularly relevant to this podcast. So there are some things that I have read or watched lately that I will just give a little shout out to. The first one is the TV show, A League of Their Own, which is a remake of the 90s movie of the same name about the first all-female professional baseball team. I have never seen the movie, but one of my friends convinced me to watch the TV show and I really enjoyed it. It's a comedy drama about a female baseball team and like sort of grappling against sexism in sports in the 1940s, but it's also about discovering like your identity and forming friendships and the LGBTQ community in the 1940s. So I really enjoyed like the historical aspect of it, even though I really do not know anything about baseball. The show still managed me to make me care about the characters and their baseball a lot, which I was impressed about. Did not really come away knowing more about the rules of baseball, but I still really enjoyed the show. And I recommend it to anyone who just like has an interest in LGBT history. I also have been in a vampire phase lately because this happens like every fall, like clockwork. So I recently finished reading the book House of Hunger by Alexis Henderson. It is a deliciously messed up gothic fantasy novel about Marion, a young girl from the slums of a city who answers a newspaper ad to become a blood maid for a countess who drinks human blood and then gets caught up in this whole terrible web of secrets and court intrigue and blood. It was so good, so gothic, so messed up, really just hit the Halloween vibes on the head, loved it. Would definitely recommend it, not to people who are squeamish about blood, but if you enjoy vampires or gothic stuff, feel like you can't do better than that for a good Halloween read. I am also taking a class on King Arthur this semester, so naturally I have been in kind of a King Arthur mood for the past couple of weeks. And I went and read Spear by Nicola Griffith, which is a fantasy novella inspired by Arthurian mythology, specifically the hero Percival. And it reimagines Percival as a woman and draws from Irish and Welsh mythology. I really enjoyed kind of the mix of mythology and history. It was very good. I enjoyed it quite a lot. Would definitely, re definitely recommend it if you have like any interest in cool woman warriors or King Arthur. Also, I do not want to say too much about it because then I will simply never stop talking about it, but I have been watching the new TV show of Interview with a Vampire and it has somewhat consumed my brain because of the aforementioned vampire phase. Uh, but I will try to keep my thoughts on that limited because this is not an episode about vampires. It's not a vampire episode, but I'm also watching that show and I'm completely obsessed with it. So like, who knows? Maybe we'll talk about it in the future. I don't know, but not today. Today, we are going to put our English degrees, not really our majors because I'm not an English major, I'm just an English minor, 
so sorry. Anyway, we're going to put our English degrees to good use today and talk about Wuthering Heights and specifically two modern retellings of the classic Gothic novel. We are going to be focusing on Black Spring by Alison Crogan and What Souls Are Made Of by Tasha Suri. They are both retellings that have come out in the past decade or so, reimagining the classic story of Wuthering Heights through kind of new lenses and new characters. Both of us are like kind of obsessed with Wuthering Heights, the original novel, and really enjoy reading retellings. So I think we're gonna have a very good time discussing how these novels take the original text and transform it and kind of what new layers and interpretations come through that. But I think probably before we dive into talking about the retellings, we should just do a little rundown of what Wuthering Heights is for people who either haven't read it and are listening to this episode or have not read it in a long time and just kind of generally remember something about Kathy and Heathcliff and Moores. So uh, Wuthering Heights, I would describe it as a gothic generational saga. It's written by Emily Bronte, who's not the same person as Charlotte Bronte, the author of Jane Eyre, just to be clear. They both wrote gothic stuff, but we're not the same person. They were siblings, though. They were siblings. The briefest description I can give of Wuthering Heights is that it's a gothic story following generations of several entangled families on the Yorkshire Moors, the most famous of these characters being the doomed lovers Kathy and Heathcliff. I think in the, like, mind of popular culture, Wuthering Heights is often remembered as a tragic romance, kind of in the vein of maybe Romeo and Juliet, but I would say it's really in my mind about cycles of abuse and violence and revenge. And the basic summary is that Wuthering Heights, the novel, is kind of a story within a story because it's framed by this nosy guy named Lockwood, who is a tenant renting a house in Yorkshire, trying to find out what the deal is with his abrasive and mysterious landlord, Heathcliff, and he ends up being told Heathcliff's life story and all this like dramatic, tragic stuff that went down over the course of several de decades by the housekeeper, Nellie Dean. So Lockwood is sort of the protagonist and framing device, but the story is really about Heathcliff and Kathy. So Heathcliff is an orphan of mysterious origins. We don't really know where he comes from in the novel, but he is taken in by the Earnshaws, a family that lives in Yorkshire. And he is raised alongside their daughter and son, especially Kathy, who he grows very close to. And Nellie kind of recounts how Kathy and Heathcliff, they grew up together in the same home, which is like very abusive and not a happy place. Kathy's father dies, her older brother is very domineering and physically terrible and awful. And they grow up like very intensely close and are sort of like clinging to each other throughout this terrible abusive childhood. But even though they have like these very strong passionate feelings for each other, they can't get married because Heathcliff is sort of an orphan from nowhere and Kathy is kind of expected to be the lady of the house. And one evening Heathcliff hears Kathy being like, I can't marry Heathcliff because he's lowborn and below me, but like, I feel like we are truly connected on some soul deep level. But he only hears her say the first part and takes it as a complete rejection, so he runs away. And during this time, Kathy ends up marrying someone else who's not Heathcliff. However, things go badly when Heathcliff comes back to Wuthering Heights and kind of starts to plot revenge and ruin everyone's lives now that Kathy has married another man and has kind of rejected him. This goes on for like decades, basically. There's just a lot of people doing bad things to their kids and people dying and illness and mores and stuff. But then eventually Kathy and Heathcliff descendants are sort of able to break the cycle of violence and it ends with like them kind of on a happier note than the two original doomed lovers. But I would say people are kind of more concerned with the first half of the novel before Kathy dies because 
Kathy and Heathcliff are both such compelling, emotionally intense characters that like their descendants are just not really as interesting, even though thematically the second half of the novel, I would say, is important because it's about continuing, but also breaking cycles of violence and abuse. But I think Kathy and Heathcliff are really the characters in the novel that you care about. So once Kathy's out of the picture, you're like, well, that's not as interesting. Yeah, I don't think there's a single movie adaptation of Wuthering Heights that covers any of the events of the novel after Kathy's death. Like you said, it is very much a story about generational trauma and cycles of violence and like passing on your issues to your children. But most people are most interested in exploring like the original generation where things went really wrong and all the issues with them. So that's kind of what the popular conception of Wuthering Heights is. Although I do think that the second half of the book has some really interesting stuff in it. It's also quite thematically important when it comes to kind of wrapping things up in the story. There's a couple important themes in Mothering Heights that are present throughout the whole thing. I think the main one is how people who are victims of abuse as children can grow up to inflict violence on others and kind of create this cycle that everyone becomes locked into. There's also the idea of Kathy and Heathcliff are like in passionate love, and this passionate love kind of ruins everything around them, including each other. There's also the idea of Heathcliff being intensely othered as a child due to his low social status and being ambiguously not white. We don't know exactly what his background is, but he is portrayed as not white. And the idea of ghosts in the novel that are maybe literal or maybe just a manifestation of how the past generally haunts everyone. And finally, kind of the setting of the Yorkshire Moors and these like big gloomy old houses full of history as both like a setting and also as characters within the novel. And these are all things that I find very compelling and interesting about Wuthering Heights, which I think these two retellings have managed to translate into different stories and explore in ways that I think we both found very compelling and interesting. So we are interested in Wuthering Heights and we're also interested in Wuthering Heights retellings that kind of try to capture some of the original stuff in the story. So the first retelling of Wuthering Heights that we're going to be talking about is Black Spring by Alison Crogan, which is a young adult retelling of Wuthering Heights that was published in 2012. I mean, it's shelved as young adult in the library that I got it from, but I would argue that I feel like it could pass as adult because it is one of the only Wuthering Heights retellings that I've encountered that follows both the story within a story idea and also the arc that covers multiple generations part of the book. Most other retellings, including the other one we're going to talk about, as well as all movie adaptations, only stick to covering the story about Kathy and Heathcliff, but this one covers multiple generations and the whole big saga of these people growing up and having kids of their own and those kids causing problems and all that stuff. So Black Spring follows a man called Hamill, who is a deeply annoying and pretentious poet who retreats to the northern land of the Black country after a love affair gone very wrong. Hamill is the equivalent of Lockwood from the original novel, it's pretty easy to connect which characters in Black Spring are equivalents of characters from Wuthering Heights, but none of them have the same names. So while Hamill is in the Black country, he rents a house from a mysterious and antisocial man named Damek. And after a bizarre and frightening night spent visiting Damek, in which he has a vision of a vile-eyed witch in a bedroom mirror, Hamill gets his housekeeper, Anna, to spill the details on Damick, the ghost of the women who turns out to be called Lena, and the history of Red House, the place that he has found himself in. So like the original book, Black Spring starts out from the point of view of like this one guy who has kind of stumbled upon the very tail end of the story, and then it transitions to the point of view of the housekeeper as she explains how we got to this point and exactly who these people are. Interestingly, 
Black Spring also has a section that's from the point of view of the Kathy character called Lita, which is not something that's present in the original novel, but which I think we'll talk about a bit more. This book skews very close to the plot and characters of the original one, and in fact all of the characters in it can be lined up with original ones in Wuthering Heights. Hamill is Mr. Lockwood, Anna is Nellie Dean, Danik is Heathcliff, Lena is Kathy, Tybor is Edgar Linton, Masco is Hindley, that sort of stuff. I think the only original character in the novel is Wizard Ezra, who we'll talk about at some point, but I would just like to say, in this house, we hate Wizard Ezra. We do hate Wizard Ezra and the fact that he is a physical manifestation of the patriarchy. There are a couple of deviations from the plot and characters from Wuthering Heights in Black Spring, such as the fact that Kathy's brother Hindley doesn't exist in this book, and Lena is in fact an only child, so his role as an abusive patriarchal figure is given to another character, so I think it manages to feel quite fresh and interesting, even if the Wuthering Heights inspiration is clear. Like, I was reading this book after I had read Wuthering Heights again recently, and I could tell, like, where the author was pulling her inspiration from, but I also wasn't quite sure exactly what direction things might go in, because it was just different enough from the original text. I think the feel and form of it are very similar to the original, even if there is changes in the character and setting. It has very similar feeling to the original Wuthering Heights. So I think this book manages to do a couple things that I think are very integral to doing a good Wuthering Heights retelling. The first is that it really nails the gloomy gothic atmosphere of Wuthering Heights. Wuthering Heights is a book that's very brutal and gothic and also very closely tied to the physical landscape of the Moors. And I think Black Spring definitely echoes that. I also think that it explores the way that society traps people in these roles that they can't escape. Wuthering Heights is at times a very claustrophobic book. It has these very limited settings, two houses in the moors, characters can leave, but they always come back. And there's sort of this sense that like, once you belong to the Yorkshire moors, you can never leave. And characters like Kathy and Heathcliff are sort of trapped by either like racism and the patriarchy marriage, stuff like that. It feels like a book in which people are very like tightly trapped in places, but also in roles in society. And I think Black Spring very much echoes that feeling of like, you cannot escape. Tragedy will always be happening. You cannot leave this place. You cannot leave the role in the tragedy that you have been given. And also one thing that Black Spring really does that I think is important is it explores generational trauma. And I think it makes it clear that Lena and Demick are tragic people who are like also deeply unpleasant and whose love is compelling, but also very toxic and codependent. And part of this is because they grew up in kind of unpleasant circumstances, slightly different than the original novel, but did not particularly have happier, well-adjusted childhoods in some ways. But also they are at the same time, kind of like very obsessive, toxic people, similar to how Kathy and Heathcliff in the original novel have very toxic, awful childhoods that kind of form them into people who are not like healthy or loving, but also like they are just quite terrible. So even as you're like, wow, the things that happen to you are awful, you're then also horrified by the things they go on to do. And it's this very nuanced balance of like seeing how characters were shaped by awful events and then watching them go on to inflict other horrors onto people because that's what they were taught as a young age. And I think Black Spring also very much captures the energy of that from the original novel in a way that is like quite upsetting and violent and I think really echoes the feeling of the original Wuthering Heights. Yeah, I think the reason that I like this book so much is that it really has the feeling of Wuthering Heights. It's not just a retelling that's about two people with a very sad and tragic love story. It also has this like very 
brutal and gothic feeling throughout the whole thing of these characters who are trapped in cycles that they can't get out of, which is, for me, what is the most interesting part of Wuthering Heights. And so I'm really glad that there's a book that manages to capture that feeling. It also kind of literalizes the cycle of vengeance that is present in the original story through a thing called the vendetta, which is a new idea in Black Spring that does not exist in the original text. In the Highlands, where most of this book takes place, there's a tradition known as the vendetta, which is basically if a man is killed, he must be avenged by a male relative who will then in turn be killed by someone else in vengeance for his death. And this like terrible cycle of death can go on for years and years and years until entire towns are like utterly bare and desolate and every single man in the family and all their distant relatives have been killed. And so I thought that the inclusion of the vendetta and this like very literal cycle of vengeance in which people are like legally and morally obligated to go out and avenge the death of others and become eventually trapped in this horrible unending cycle that will go on until there is no one else left to perpetuate it. I just thought that kind of mimics the cycle of the abuse and revenge plots in the original novel very well. And it's a totally new component that does not exist in original Wuthering Heights. There's no like literal vendetta going on in Yorkshire, but I thought it worked very well as a kind of way to literalize the idea of these characters who are trapped in these cycles and these roles that they very much do not want. Yeah, because Heathcliff's revenge plot kind of drives, I would say, a large part of Wuthering Heights because he runs away when he thinks that Kathy has rejected him and becomes extremely vastly wealthy while he is gone for reasons that we as the reader never quite know. Though there are a lot of academic theories, like he became a privateer, he profited off of the slave trade, he went and fought as a mercenary. We don't really know, but likely through like some violent and unethical means. And Heathcliff comes back to Wuthering Heights with this like fire burning in his heart that he will make Kathy regret having turned him down and married someone else. And he goes on to like become this like horrific violent figure who is terrible to like everyone around him because he's so devoted to revenge. And at times his revenge scheme is like kind of weird. You're like, what, what does this have to do? But other times it's just like incredibly brutal. And I think by making revenge and vengeance a literal part of the world building that extends beyond just the Heathcliff character that sort of takes like a theme that is present in Wuthering Heights and then makes it part of the fantasy world building in Black Spring because Black Spring is set in a secondary world fantasy universe. It's kind of like our world, but not exactly. And one of the aspects that's different along with magic is the cultural idea of the vendetta being included. Yeah, this is a fantasy novel that takes place in another universe, but it quite similarly mimics our own. Like they mentioned the Bible at one point. So it's like definitely very similar to our world. There is a little bit of magic, but not a ton, except in certain parts. The Black country where this takes place is like a deeply patriarchal world, and therefore it's acceptable for certain men to practice magic and be wizards, but all girls who are suspected of being witches are persecuted and killed. Lena, who is the Kathy character in this novel, is the daughter of a woman from a wizard clan who married her father, who is a nobleman, without permission and kind of like against the disregard of tradition in her family. And so Lena is born with the purple eyes of a witch, but because her father is a lord, she is safe from being killed and persecuted to a certain extent, at least. And this idea of magic in the novel is not really there so much so you can watch characters do spells, but so much as you can see the patriarchal double standards that exist regarding magic and the way that men with magic and women with magic are treated because there's a character called wizard Ezra who is really the only major 
character in the book who does not have a counterpart in Wuthering Heights, and he's a very feared and respected figure whose word is always obeyed and is believed to have like terrible magic power under his command. And he is greatly feared and respected and considered like a pillar of the community, and no one would ever dare go against him. Whereas Nina is simply ostracized for her magic. And so that's kind of one way that the fantasy aspect is really more about society and like double standards and how would people act in a deeply patriarchal society with magic. Also because Lena is not really ever officially trained as a witch because to acknowledge that she is a witch would then put her in danger. It's sort of just like an open secret that anyone who sees her knows that there is like some magical heritage in her family but as long as they act like it's not there, she can continue living a life of a normal woman. Because Lena is never really officially trained as a witch, like I said, the magic mostly kind of represents itself as like very strong visceral emotions that are projected out into the world. Like Lena has these kind of telekinetic fits where she will throw objects at things at people where like forces that come out of nowhere will just kind of slam people around. And she's a very volatile character and her magic sort of exists as an extension of her emotions and kind of the tantrums that she throws as a child, which is really interesting to me because I think it relates a way in a way to the way that in the original Wuthering Heights, I think characters' emotions are sort of reflected onto or like representations of the physical landscape. Like in the original novel, when Heathcliff runs away from Wuthering Heights because he thinks he's been rejected by Kathy, which is this like deeply terrible moment of like betrayal and misunderstanding and passionate romance gone wrong. There's this awful storm that like shakes the moors and destroys part of the roof of the heights. And I think having Lena be a character who has magic, but it's like very untrained, emotional, visceral magic that just kind of lashes out with her emotions, to me felt like it very much mimicked the way that characters' emotional landscapes often mirror or impact the physical landscapes in the text of Wuthering Heights. So it's not just like, now I shall pull out my magical grimoire and recite a spell in Latin and draw a little chalk thing on the ground to summon a demon or like mix these herbs together as a potion. It's more like, what if you were so filled with rage that the rage went outside of your body and began throwing knives at people? And it feels like it's very related to the way that characters in Wuthering Heights are just so passionate and full of emotions, often negative emotions, that like their emotions cannot be contained to their physical bodies. Yeah, I really liked the idea to make Lena a character with magic in this novel, but specifically the way that it's portrayed. One, because I think it's extremely valid in this book to let Lena have telekinetic fits where she hurls things at horrible men using her mind. There's like one particular scene which is like really badass and like deeply terrifying near the climax where she just completely loses control, which is also kind of a metaphor for like how the character is just like done with her role in society. But it's also like you said, Kathy in the original novel is such a volatile character and her emotions are constantly like pushing other people around and like affecting the world around her so intensely because she feels so much that I really liked the idea of her being a witch who can like physically affect the world if the emotions that she feels are strong enough. So it's just a fun adaptational choice where you can kind of use magic to like make your character's emotions even more powerful. Also another thing that I found really interesting about the adaptational choices regarding Lena in this book is that she has a point of view in Black Spring, which Kathy does not in Wuthering Heights. In the original book, it's mentioned that Kathy keeps a diary and Lockwood reads a couple of lines of it at the beginning of the novel, but we never really see anything else of it. And in Black Spring, diary entries from Lena's perspective are included to fill in gaps of time when Anna was away from Red House serving as a servant in a different household. 
And so you kind of get to see like exactly what Lena is thinking and her thoughts on all these things that are happening to her through this like epistolary section that's written from the point of view of her diary. And I really liked that this book managed to give Lena a little bit more of a voice. She's a very flawed, angry, and selfish character. Like most of her diary entries are written in like fits of like teenage fury over either like minor slights or truly awful things that have happened to her. But it's also very easy to sympathize with her as a character and, and her struggles as a female witch in a world that hates both women and witches specifically. So I just felt like a way to kind of give Lena a little bit more of her due and kind of acknowledge that like she might be sort of a bad person who's like overly volatile at other people sometimes, but also her emotions and her experiences are valid. I think overall, this novel has a much more, maybe if not more nuanced, more sympathetic portrayal of the Kathy character than in Wuthering Heights, because Nellie Dean, who is primarily what we where we learn about Kathy in the original novel, she helps raise Kathy, but she kind of regards her as sort of spoiled and dramatic. And also, she's much older than Kathy, but not really peers. She's a servant in the house who isn't like a close confidant of Kathy. But in this version, Anna is a servant girl who was raised alongside Lena, kind of like a sibling or close friendship relationship. And they have a much more positive relationship than I would say Nellie and Kathy do. And also it means that we see a kind of more sympathetic side to Lena, but also that we see like how can she can be more personally awful to those around her because she's like kind of tyrannical and volatile as a kid and throws all these tantrums. But also we see from her perspective, but also from Anna's perspective, that she goes through like some really awful stuff at the hands of men in this novel because I think the tragedy of her character is that she exists in this like deeply deeply patriarchal world where her status can protect her to a certain extent but also once her father dies and is out of the picture she sort of loses a male protector and the epistolary section that we get in the middle like really shows us personal insight into her and we get that she's like volatile and angry and she pushes others away but also there's often such genuine reasonings because she's gone through like really awful mistreatment and abuse at the hands of men. And I think the original Wuthering Heights, Kathy is sort of a figure that exists through layers of others' perceptions, which I think is super, super interesting. At the very beginning of Wuthering Heights, when the character of Lockwood is staying the night in Heathcliff's house, he finds like an old diary of Kathy's and he reads a couple lines of it but we don't like learn that much about her. But then that night he has like a dream of Kathy's ghost outside his window begging to be let in. And when he tells Heathcliff about that, Heathcliff like absolutely loses it and is like, what do you mean she appeared to you as a ghost? Why not me? Like, I need to let her in, Kathy, where are you? And Lockwood's fascination with like, what on earth is going on here leads him to go investigate and learn from Nellie, like what Kathy's whole deal is. But because Kathy is dead at the point when we encounter Lockwood, we never meet her in person or get her personal perspective the way that we have Lockwood interacting with Heathcliff in the present day plotline. But what this novel really does is like gives us a completely different insight into the character of Lena than we get into Kathy. And I thought that was like very, very interesting because in many ways this book adheres like very close to the plot, the form, the atmosphere, the characters of Wuthering Heights. But I feel like it's all slightly at a slant because we're getting so much more of Lena's perspective and we ever did of Kathy's and that sort of makes the whole novel read differently. Yeah I wouldn't say that the original Wuthering Heights novel is not unsympathetic towards Kathy. I think it is written from the perspective of like 
this woman went through a lot of very bad stuff and we're going to like show you how she was trapped by her role in society and how she couldn't escape but I also do think that the perspective that we're learning about her from primarily which is Nellie Dean is often rather patronizing towards Kathy and kind of occasionally belittles her feelings like there's a part where Kathy is like having somewhat of a mental breakdown over the fact that she is married and like Heathcliff has just come back and she like isn't free to be with him and she's having a huge fight with her husband about whether or not she's allowed to see this other man that she cares about a lot and Nellie Dean is not super sympathetic towards it and is uh, in fact frankly rather annoyed at Kathy for making a big deal out of it and a similar situation does occur in Black Spring when Damick originally appears. I think that Anna has somewhat more sympathy for Lena in this book because she's much closer in age to her and therefore is able to relate to more of the struggles that she is going through so it's not that I think the original novel like doesn't portray Kathy in a more sympathetic light it's just that this one actually lets Lena have like her own voice and words through her relationship with Anna and also her diary and it's kind of interesting to get to see like what the character is thinking in like an undiluted and very open way rather than having it be filtered through other characters perceptions of her. But we still get the sense of her through the perceptions of others because so much of it is from Anna's point of view and not Lena's. So I think it, it manages to keep that while adding another layer to it, which I liked. This novel's version of Heathcliff, who's Damick, also has a lot of similarities to his original counterpoint while deviating in somewhat interesting ways. Like Heathcliff, Damick is taken in as a ward by Lena's family for reasons that are never made entirely clear to any of the characters in the novel. There are a lot of theories about why the Earnshaws adopted Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights, which I think we'll get more into in What Souls Are Made Of, because that turns out to be quite relevant in that book. But essentially, his background is a total mystery. The reason that he is adopted by the family is like, somewhat vague you can kind of try to figure it out if you want but like it's never explicitly stated what their motivation was and the characters are in fact even unsure what race he is other than the fact that he is not English and so in Wuthering Heights he seems to be something of a replacement for the family's dead son since it's mentioned they named him Heathcliff after a dead brother of Kathy's but there's still all this ambiguity about like why did Mr. Earnshaw just pick up this random child from the side of the road in like Liverpool or somewhere and then be like, he is going to be like our son now? And so you never really get like a clear sense about this. This is also the case in Black Spring in which Damick's background is very unclear, but it's heavily implied that he is an illegitimate son of the king of the Black country and that Lena's father has to foster him in order to get, regain the favor that he lost through marrying a witch woman, but no one is entirely sure about this, including possibly Demick. And so like Heathcliff, his race is very uncertain and as is, as is his background, there's a conversation that he has with Anna where it's clear that he has a very traumatic life prior to arriving at Red House, but we never learn exactly what it is because although Anna is extremely close to Lena and does spend some of her childhood with Demick, she never quite gets to know him in the same way that she did Lena. And so like the original Heathcliff, he does remain a character who has a lot of mystery and it's never entirely clear exactly like what his background is or like how he came to be where he is. I would say that I think this novel primarily focuses on giving us more insight into Lena as a character because we directly get her words. Anna is her close childhood friend. But I think there is a little bit we get to see of Demick as a nuanced character because I think he is still pretty awful in this retelling as he was in the original. I think Heathcliff is a character who at the start, like he goes through very horrific things, but because 
he also goes on to inflict horrific things onto others like he is still kind of a bad person it's a very nuanced thing where like he has experienced terrible abuse and violence and that is so all he knows and like he goes on to inflict that onto everyone else and I think like Heathcliff in the original thing we get a sense of very strongly how Damick's childhood has shaped him and I think we see more of him as a kid in this than we do in the original Wuthering Heights which I feel like adds some nuance because Anna was there as they were growing up alongside Lena and Damick. I feel like we see more of them as children together. I think especially the idea of Kathy and Heathcliff out playing on the moors as children is like a very iconic image from Wuthering Heights. And one like literary interpretation of it is that they are playing in the outdoors because it's a safer place in their abusive home and sort of flipping the dynamic of like indoors safe, outdoors scary and unknown. It's like the horrors of the outdoors, like wild animals and bad weather and getting lost are still preferred to like the violence of their home and Hindley's abuse and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I think we still very much get like a sense of them as children out on the moors sort of trying to escape the world and like just be in their little world of two people. But I do feel like we get a lot more of Lena as a character in this. And like you said, Danik still kind of remains this character who is shrouded in mystery. And I think it is pretty important to Heathcliff's character in the original novel that he knows that he is different, but he does not know anything about himself other than that. Like he is completely unmoored. He doesn't really have a family he belongs to. He doesn't really have a background that he understands. And I think there's a little bit more of a hint to Damick's backstory in this, but it's like, it doesn't, it's not pleasant for him. It doesn't ground him. He doesn't come from a place of love or like a family that he can think on fondly. I think it's still like, he knows more about where he's come from, but it hasn't necessarily made him happier. Yeah, there is one interesting part in the book after Anna's father has died as a result of the vendetta and she is mourning him. And there's a part where Damick like comes up to her and says like, don't worry, it won't hurt forever. At some point you'll start to forget about him and it won't hurt anymore, which is not something that's present in the original novel because we don't really know anything about Nellie Dean's parents. But in this version, it kind of seems like Demick is speaking from personal experience and that whatever background he had before he came to the Red House featured some kind of like immense loss in his childhood of a family member or some kind of loved one or like the loss of some kind of life that he had. And that's kind of really one of the only hints that we get about the character and his background. I think that Anna's relationship with Demick is quite interesting since they are also of a similar age and grew up together, but she's never as close to him as she was to Lena when she was younger, but they do know each other. It's just that there's always kind of like a gap between like, Lena and Demick and Anna, and she can never quite cross that divide and learn exactly what's going on with Demick's background or his secrets. But it does mean that they have like enough of a connection from their shared childhood that she feels extra betrayed by his behavior later in the novel and is like really horrified to see what kind of person Demick has grown up to be after knowing him as a child, which I think is a very interesting direction to bring the character. I liked how much of this book is devoted to their childhood because you can kind of see like, how much the things that Anna, Lena, and Damick suffered when they were younger has affected them as adults, whether it be losing a family member to a vendetta or being stuck in a, an abusive patriarchal household or being like distanced from your own background and family, stuff like that. Something that like really, really struck me about Wuthering Heights when I was reading it for the first time is just like how incredibly brutal and messed up it is. Because I think if you don't read a lot of classic literature, maybe there's a sense that it's all kind of stuffy and it's just about people getting married and like there's no 
real like grit to it but Wuthering Heights as a novel like it goes to very dark places Nellie Dean recounts stuff like how Hindley tries to stab her with a knife and how he almost drops his own son off a staircase and like it does not really hold back from really violent upsetting topics and I think this novel especially in regards to like Danik's later actions and the fact that he is like a man driven solely by revenge and the fact that this is also a book which is about like the brutal effects of the patriarchy I think it feels in line with how upsetting the original Wuthering Heights is like it's not an easy novel characters like do not simply allude to the bad things that have happened to them we know what happened to them in detail and I think like gothic literature is just really interesting because if you aren't really familiar with classics you might be like oh well I had to read some stuff from my English class in high school and it was just really dry but like Wuthering Heights just feels like a novel in which there is so much like brutality and strong emotion and I just feel like Black Spring for me really captured the feeling of it well and some of that is through like how we know that Damick has been shaped by really awful things and then he goes on to do bad things I don't know he's just he's an interesting character because it's like at times you feel sympathy for him when you're aware of the stuff that he went through as a child but then also because he grows up to feel like he can then do these bad things to other people it's like it's such an interesting nuanced character I think we'll talk more about Heathcliff in particular during the like what souls are made of section in this but I just have many thoughts on Wuthering Heights okay we didn't become English majors for no reason <laughs> so I think that Anna is kind of the only sane person in this novel this book really emphasizes the idea that she's just like this regular woman who's just trying to live her life and like get married and have a, a stable job and everyone around her is like descending into gothic madness like Lena and Damek will be screaming hysterically at each other or having mental breakdowns or confessing their love at the worst possible moment and Anna's just kind of like I cannot believe this is my life and I'm having to deal with these people right now and it's quite sad but also seeing Anna be like everyone please be reasonable I felt rather bad for her. She's sort of like the Nick Carraway of this novel in that she just kind of exists to relay wilder things that are happening among other characters but I think the fact that you also have the vendetta in this novel and the fact that Anna's family is directly affected by it is like it's not a story about someone who is an outsider looking in that's Hamill like Anna is someone who is wrapped up in this these are people that she loves who are being affected who are dying like she is inextricably part of this tragedy even if she's not the center character and that's one of the things that I find so interesting about Wuthering Heights because Kathy and Heathcliff are never really the direct narrators but like they are kind of the axes of which the story rotates around and it's sort of about like how other people are trapped in this terrible gothic messed up romance and they can't escape but even if you're not the protagonist that doesn't mean you aren't part of the story and it's like you cannot escape this even if you are not directly a pair of the doomed lovers and Anna kind of exemplifies that like she cannot leave this behind her family are the ones who are dying because of the vendetta. Her childhood friends are the ones who are like miserable and toxic. And it's just sort of like, it's a tragedy narrated by someone who is simultaneously both on the sidelines because they're not necessarily the one who is starring in it, but also someone who is like deeply still affected by it. Yeah, I really liked the fact that Anna is a childhood friend of Lena and Damick because it gives us so much more insight into these characters, what they were like as children. Like, Anna was there when Demick first arrived and she was also like who is this strange boy what is he doing in my house she was there when she saw that Lena originally hated Demick and didn't 
want him around and then very quickly they became inseparable and she was also like still quite young as well when Lena's father died a few years later so Anna has like been here through all of this and she might not be a character who is like as inextricably intertwined like this like dramatic gothic romance but she's still very much there and kind of sees all that happened and she's like the one who's left to witness it all at the end when everyone else is gone which is just such an interesting idea I love the idea of like the one character left standing at the end of the tragedy who just has to like stand there and like take stock of everything that's happened and try to remember the story to tell other people it's Horatio. It's so Horatio. Horatio at the end of Hamlet being forced to explain why there are all these dead bodies to Fornbras. And one of them is the man that he loves, but he's the only person who's left to tell his story. And sometimes it's more tragic that they're the one surviving because it means you must tell the story and all the responsibilities on your shoulders. <laughs> I mean, I was actually thinking of Horatio when I said that. But yes, there, there's big Horatio vibes going on here. I was taking a psychology class the first time I read Wuthering Heights in high school and so I have a lot of opinions about how it is not actually a romance novel. It's a story about a codependent relationship developed during childhood as a way to cope with domestic abuse and I really liked that this novel clearly has the same opinion. It's very much like Lena and Damek are not like inextricably connected to each other because of like their like star-crossed romance which no one else can understand which is like a, a purer and better and more passionate love that anyone else in the world could possibly have it's more like these were two children who were stuck in like really awful circumstances where they had no one else to rely on except each other and even now that they're adults and they're kind of expected to like develop their own communities and marry and have children and families of their own but they can't seem to like untangle from each other and like this is ultimately what brings them down it's like some part of them will always be the child who is running away into the moors to escape from hindley and anna understands it to an extent but also i think lena and damik because they just clung to each other so fervently during that time period it for them it sort of feels like no one will ever understand them in the way that the other one does and they frame it in such like amazing deep spiritual passionate language like oh our souls are the same and that kind of stuff like that's a very iconic quote from Wuthering Heights and that idea is reused in both of these but it's also like it's not just that you are like the same on some deep pure spiritual level I think it's also that these are two characters who have been shaped by similar if not the same horrific circumstances like it's not the same because Heathcliff I think had it much worse than Kathy because he is like an orphan from nowhere who's like ambiguously somehow other and faces like a lot of racial violence from characters but like they grew up in the same house that is not like a happy wonderful home and that I think shapes them from such a severe way that like they feel like they are connected on this deep level and it's partially because they just understand the terrible circumstances that they came from. Yeah it's it's true that the characters are affected in different ways by the prejudices of society because like you said Heathcliff and also Damick is a man and can therefore like leave and make his fortune and become like an independent wealthy man but will also always be in some way defined by like the racism that he faces whereas Kathy and also Lena is a rich attractive white woman who has the option to like marry and bring herself up in the world through that but is also inherently stuck in her patriarchal, patriarchal role in society. So neither character is affected by the same prejudices as the other one, but they're also both very much stuck in a world that will only try to allow them to have one role and won't let them break out of it and will always judge them based off of who they are. And 
kind of the tragedy of Wuthering Heights is that there's like no way for these characters to like ever be together in any kind of healthy or pleasant way because the forces of society that are trying to pull them apart are so strong. And also because they're both kind of deeply unpleasant people. <laughs> like you can yes. go to Wuthering Heights and you're like, oh, could Kathy and Heathcliff be happy together if they lived in some other place or some other time? And you're like, mm, no, probably not. They also just kind of suck. But like, we, don't, we won't know for sure because they are so firmly entrenched in the society that they're born in that there is no way to imagine either character without them being formed by the world that they grew up in. The interesting thing about Black Spring is that Wuthering Heights is not a happy novel, but it does have something approaching a happy ending. And this novel does not have that at all. So the original Wuthering Heights is, as we said, a generational story. And at the end of this novel, uh, Heathcliff dies possibly like it's very ambiguous exactly how and why he dies but it seems to have some sort of connection to Kathy and possibly her ghost and like may or may not have involved that we don't really know but there is also this kind of implied happy ending of Kathy's daughter and Hindley's son I'm getting that right right that's who they are Oh my god, do not make me keep the family tree. The family tree in Mother Kites is insane. When I was studying this book in class, someone asked a professor if she could draw a family tree on the chalkboard. And she was like, I'm sorry, I can't. It has too many spoilers from the novel. You're just going to have to deal. But anyway, the point is that they're like the two younger generations, uh, two children who are members of the younger generation of the family are unlike the older ones, able to kind of like come together and find some amount of like peace and forgiveness and love. And so like the happy ending of the novel is sort of like everyone is dead. Like the earth is like barren and Kathy and Heathcliff are gone, but they've left like these two kids who will maybe be able to move on. But also the ending of Wuthering Heights is like a little bit funny from a modern perspective because in the middle section, it's like these cousins marrying each other is bad. But then at the end, it's like these cousins marrying each other is good. And I'm like, I think maybe just marrying your cousin in general maybe is not something you should be doing. Yes, um, but I know that's thematically important because it's about how they've managed to move past the Harari's that have been like inflicted on them by the previous generations. But it was a little funny that the novel's like, no, you can marry that cousin, but not that one. Yes, although to be fair, the cousin marrying going on in the fiction novel is being orchestrated by a huge cliffs. So there was like, you know, there was a lot going on there. Um, but in general, the ending of this novel is portrayed as happier than the beginning or the middle, but we don't really know, like, are they going to escape the ending? But like, it's possible they might. I really do just think about how weird it is that Heathcliff's revenge plot involved people getting married because he comes back and it's like, okay, so you get Hindley to like gamble away all of his fortune to you. And then you own the house that you grew up in and symbolically like you have reclaimed the place that was a, like a child of horrors. But then he's like, and now my second evil scheme is I will marry these people to each other. And I'm like, wait, what? Well, it's because he wants to get the house of Kathy's husband. The I only know. way he can get that house, which is thrust across Grange is by having his son marry into that family and so he orchestrates this marriage in order to get both of the houses because the houses might actually belong to the children but the children are controlled by him and so he has his revenge through like this bizarre marriage plot it's very complicated i'm not sure we have time to get into every single detail of it but anyway the point is that the original novel does have a somewhat happier ending in which it's like maybe these children who were like erased and abused by Heathcliff can grow up to be happier and there's like a scene of 
Kathy's daughter, who is also called Kathy, just for maximum confusion right there, uh, teaching Hindley's son, whose name also starts with H, just to add some confusion. His name is Harrison. Uh, anyway, there's a scene of her teaching him how to read, which he was denied the ability to learn how to do because Heathcliff wanted to basically punish the son from the sins of the father because he hated Hindley that much. And so there's kind of the scene of like the two children from like the opposing sides of the family have kind of like maybe come together and maybe like new life and peace and happiness will come from like all of this pain and misery but like we don't know but like it still might be a little bit happier whereas that is absolutely not a thing with the ending of Black Spring in this case Demick does not have any children he does have a complicated marriage plot that involves marrying on to marry to gain a house but he doesn't have any children of his own uh, and so at the end of the novel there is no real implication of these children who are like going to carry on and not bring like the sins of their parents and the cycle of, of abuse into the future just kind of like well Danek is dead and Lena is dead and they and like we left behind one child which is Lena's daughter with her husband and maybe this girl will be better but for now everything is just kind of bleak and everyone is gone. Mm, it's interesting because there is sort of this like epic fantasy wizard versus witch showdown at a certain point which is when wizard Ezra comes to Lena's house and she kind of stops deciding to fit into the role people have told her to. She's like, I don't care. I am going to embrace the fact that I'm a witch. I will fully become who I am. And the room becomes this like sort of telekinetic hurricane around her. And um, she uses her witch powers to kind of smash the poker through wizard Ezra's head and kills him in this like incredibly brutal way and I think that is sort of in many ways the emotional climax of a novel but it's not where it ends because Lena then kind of like falls down into a, like a dead faint and is sort of in a coma and then dies so there's like this moment like of incredibly peaked high emotion like I will release myself from the bonds of the patriarchy I will embrace being a witch I've spent my entire life being told that this is dangerous and I should hide it but I will finally use it to defend myself against this terrible man who's like also sort of the embodiment of like patriarchal attitudes towards magic. But it's not ultimately a triumphant or happy ending for Lena because the cost of it is her life. And I think it just sort of ends with this sense of like the same feeling that characters get when a vendetta has burned through a village and there are so many dead people and it's been devastated. And the only thing that you can be glad about is that it's over and that it's not getting worse. There isn't really a sense for things getting better. It's just like, well, they can't get worse because they've already been the worst it can be. Yeah, the very end of this novel basically involves Demek being involved in a rather complicated plan to destroy families and gain money and prestige for himself and also revenge, which involves marrying uh, Lena's daughter, who is also called Lena because we are all about the confusing children. And he doesn't really marry her out of like love or lust or anything. It's like genuine hatred is what he feels for this child because he blames the second Lena for her mother's death, but he does marry her and gain control over her house and her money. And in that his vengeance is kind of complete, but he has also brought utter ruin to both of these families. And so there's not really anything else that goes on from there like he just dies and there's kind of a promise of like maybe people will heal and maybe they won't also i really like that this novel ends with a letter from hamill he comes back i think there are a couple more interludes with lockwood and weathering heights than there are interludes with hamill in this book because you sort of forget about hamill for like 
the majority of the middle because he just pops up in the beginning and then he's sort of in the end. But it ends with him writing a letter back to the city where he came from. And he's just like, well, that was really messed up. I think I'm going to go home now. Wow. What are, what's wrong with people in like the black country? These islands are so messed up. Anyway, not my problem anymore. Um, and it's just so callous and so interesting because we have seen like the utter devastation of families and people who have been like brought incredibly low and like the heights of passion and like the lows of lows and death and stuff like that. Like the, the novel goes through so much and it like, it really puts all the characters through the complete utter ringer. Like if they don't die, they lose many people close to them, stuff like that. Um, and Hamill just doesn't care at the end. He's just like, yeah, that was kind of messed up, but I guess I'll have like at least a good story to tell when I go back to the city. And I love that it ends on this note of like the outsider being like, well, that was weird, but I'm just gonna brush my hands a bit and leave. Like I'm out, goodbye. It's just so callous and like the contrast between the incredibly tight and passionate character bonds throughout most of the novel and then Hamill just being like, well, that's not my problem. It's a little bit like how you as the reader almost feel because you're like enjoying this story of like drama and tragedy and horror for your own entertainment. But then when there's a character in the book who's like, oh my God, that was so weird and dramatic. Well, peace out, I'm, I'm done. You're like, hang on a second, that comes off across as really callous, but it's just kind of over. There's a little bit of Anna kind of being like, Demic is dead now, things might be better now that he's gone, but we don't really know. And then Hamlet's just like, goodbye, and that's it. Uh, which is not a particularly happy ending, but I think does feel rather fitting for a novel like this, because the whole thing is about sort of being left standing at like the utter ruins these people managed to make of their relationship and so just having it kind of end on that note felt very fitting I think. Right like it is a tragedy and it's not going to ever have a happy ending and I think one of the things that really stuck out to me when I was reading this is how Anna has the revelation partway through the novel that the vendetta system exists to uphold the monarchy and the nobility because part of it is not just having to go out and kill someone it's also like having to pay fines and people will often like financially devastate their families because they need to pay this money even as they know they're going to die and the fact that they're used to fill up the coffers of the king and she becomes aware of this but there's nothing she can do to stop it it's still this like awful system that's burning its way through the black country and devastating families for profit ultimately and the real tragedy in it is that she cannot do anything to stop that like people's lives are ruined, families are destroyed, villages are decimated, she loses her father. Um, it just continues on and on and on in like this terrible kind of like domino toppling line of death. And ultimately it's just so people who are sitting happy in the royal castles and the downlands can have money. And there's nothing she can do about it. There's no like, we shall rise up against the nobility and lead a bold and noble revolution. It's just like, you become aware of it and you're like, that's messed up and I can't do anything about it. And the sense that like these characters are just trapped in the story, in the country, in the narrative, like makes it so tragic and claustrophobic. Overall, I really like this Wuthering Heights retelling because I think it manages to capture what I find so interesting about the original novel, which is primarily that all the characters are screwed up in some way and that they like drag other people into their problems. And also just like the feeling of like this cycle going on and on of people growing up and becoming awful to those that treated them badly when they were younger and like bringing all their issues onto the next generation of children. And I think this novel really managed to capture both of those. So I found it to be like an incredibly satisfying read because it's, 
I think very difficult to find books that capture the same feeling in me as Wuthering Heights, which is like this horrible generational cycle of everyone inflicting issues on each other over and over again. But I think this book does do that. And I find that very satisfying. Right. Like it's not Wuthering Heights light. It feels like it has the same emotional intensity as Wuthering Heights. I could imagine that Damick was going to go up to Lena's grave and try to dig it up to embrace her dead body. And that wouldn't surprise me at all. Like Alison Croggan really digs like into the bones of what makes Wuthering Heights feel like Wuthering Heights in this retelling. And I think that's what it feels successful about it is just how much it captures the atmosphere and also just the tragic intensity of the character relationships. And also, if you can't tell, the main difference between us and Hamill as observers of the story is that we are incredibly haunted by it and cannot stop thinking about it. <laughs> we'll not be <laughs> rushing around and working to our nice lowland city for our publishing job because Wuthering Heights has been living in my brain for like a year. Wuthering Heights has been living in my brain since high school and it has permanently affected my ability to uh, become fascinated by stories about families slowly destroying themselves, which is also why I'm obsessed with House of the Dragon, but I'm not going to get to that right now. Anyway, so ultimately, I think we both found this to be a very satisfying Wuthering Heights retelling that kind of like pressed the same button of like cathartic, horrible tragedies about family ruin in our head that we enjoy so much in the original novel. Should we maybe move on to talk about the next one? We should, yeah. So the second Wuthering Heights retelling we are going to talk about in this episode is much more recent. It is What Souls Are Made Of by Tasha Suri. It was published in 2022, and it is a young adult novel that was published as part of the Classics Remixed lineup. And that's kind of a series in which various authors write diversified retellings of classical novels and make them sort of like accessible and interesting to teen readers. So there's, I think we've mentioned other ones that we're considering reading on this podcast, like uh, a while ago when we did an episode on a Great Gatsby retelling, we mentioned Self-Made Boys by Anne Marie McElmore and is a Great Gatsby retelling, but they all sound pretty interesting. Not all of them are for books that I have read and I do prefer to read retellings so I can compare them to the source material. So I haven't read that many of them and I've only actually read this one and I, I would like to read the Great Gatsby one at some point. But anyway, it's part of a series is what I'm getting at here. And one thing about us here at Never the Twins Shall Meet is that we are big fans of Tasha Suri and we have been ever since her debut novel, Empire of Sand. She primarily writes adult epic secondary world fantasy. So she has the Books of Amba series, which consists of Empire of Sand and Kingdom of Ash. But Realm also of Ash. What? Realm of Ash, I think. Yeah, which consists of Kingdom of Sand and Realm of Ash. But also she has a more recent series that includes the Jasmine Throne. And she writes like very big epic secondary world stuff. But I think... She is very good at writing like emotionally intense, perhaps verging on tragic character relationships and also characters whose lives are shaped by colonialism and imperialism. So as soon as that it was mentioned that Tasha Stewart was writing Weathering Heights retelling, I was like, oh, this is going to be good and was like madly anticipating it for like a year and a half. <laughs> yeah, we are both big fans of Tasha Suri. Now that I think about it, I think we actually collectively own every single one of her books, which is like what can I say? She's just a good author. And so we are both really anticipating this book, like ever since it had been announced, because like, if you had asked me to pick an author that I thought make a really good Wuthering Heights retelling, like it would have been Tasha Suri, uh, because like her books are just that good and interesting and compelling. And so I was really excited to read this one. And I think we're going to have a good time discussing it. So What Souls Are Made Of is, shockingly, a retelling of Wuthering Heights. And specifically, it reimagines both Heathcliff and Kathy as biracial and of British Indian descent. So in this version of the story, Heathcliff's father is a sailor from South Asia and Kathy's mother was an Indian woman. And that's kind of the main like 
new lens that this book applies to it. It sort of is like um, specifically reimagining Wuthering Heights through the lens of the history of Indian people in Britain and British colonialism in India. Yeah, Heathcliff's father is specifically referred to as a Lascar, which is a historical term for a sailor from India or South Asia, which is a real thing in history that is not talked about, like, I feel like a huge amount when it comes to the history of England, but like was very much a thing. So this kind of tries to ground Wuthering Heights in the real history of India and South Asia and British colonialism. So Kathy in this retelling is white passing and her family doesn't really discuss her heritage and kind of just tries to pass her off as a purely white English lady. But Heathcliff is visibly not white and this sort of plays like a very important role in both of their stories. I think for this retelling, it makes a lot of sense to reimagine Kathy as someone who has Indian heritage, but presents herself as white. And Heathcliff as someone who is like of visibly, more visibly of Indian descent, because I think in the original novel, they are really characters who intensely understand each other on some very deep, personal, almost spiritual level. But Heathcliff is also very much othered because of his race by other characters a lot. So I think it means that these characters can sort of connect to each other, understand what it means to be British Indian in a very white community that sort of like either tries to erase your identity or other you, but also that they have different experiences through how they navigate the world. So in the original Wuthering Heights, we have mentioned that it's like never actually clear where Heathcliff comes from. There's a lot of theories. He comes from Liverpool, which is a city that had a lot of trade and a lot of connections with like Africa and India. And Heathcliff is probably not white, but it's never really expounded on exactly because there's so much about him we don't know. At one point, Nellie Neen is like, oh, you could imagine that your mother was an empress of India and your father was the king of China. And there's sort of this sense that characters think of Heathcliff as not white, but he is so cut off from his past and his family that he doesn't really have like a sense of cultural identity. But in this book, it dives very specifically into imagining Heathcliff and Kathy as of British Indian descent. So the novel takes place during the actual events of Wuthering Heights, but it only covers like a section of the original book. So in the original story, there's a part where Kathy has accepted the proposal of Edward Linton, who is like their next door neighbor, and he's rich and fancy and the ideal husband. And she's discussing this with Nellie Dean, and she starts talking about Heathcliff, and she says that she can't marry him because like, he's lower than her and she's expected to sort of marry someone who is rich and would be a good husband. And then she gives this like very famous gothic-y speech about how she and Heathcliff are one person and their souls are made of the same thing and they truly are connected in like a way that no one else can understand or feel. But unfortunately Heathcliff in a very tragic moment of miscommunication, he only overhears the first part where Kathy is like, I can't marry Heathcliff because he's like lowborn. And he leaves and he's furious and heartbroken. And he does not return for several years, but when he comes back, he's like incredibly wealthy, like we said, through very mysterious means. And Kathy is married to Edgar Linton. And he goes about like deciding to plot to kind of ruin everyone's lives as revenge for this rejection. And this novel takes place during the section of the novel in which Kathy and Heathcliff are split up. And it deals with Heathcliff traveling to Liverpool and sort of trying to make a new life for him. While Kathy at the same time is staying home at Wuthering Heights and is trying to grapple with her upcoming marriage to Edgar and uncovering a lot of her family secrets. So unlike Black Spring, it's less of like a novel that reimagines the entirety of Wuthering Heights and more like sort of zooming in on one particular section of the novel that we actually don't know that much about in the original text. I actually read Wuthering Heights for one of my classes at college last semester, which I think either the second or third time I read it, I don't remember which. And we had a pretty extensive discussion in class 
that lasted for a while, both about Heathcliff's racial ambiguity and also like why he became part of the Earnshaw household and why they adopted him. So I was really excited for a book that kind of explores both of those ideas. And the characters in Wuthering Heights have no idea what Heathcliff's background is. And like you mentioned, there's a point where Nellie Dean proposes several different ideas about who his parents could be. There's, um, I think I've heard, I've heard argued it could be he's Chinese, Indian, African, Romani, some mix of those, even Irish, which I, I think is personally a very silly theory because it, why would he be Irish if he could be like something else, uh, but can technically be argued in the way that Irish people were othered in this time period. Yeah, I mean, I want to be clear when we're talking about Wuthering Heights, we're talking about a book that was written. First of all, we are American. And second of all, we are living in the 21st century. So our understanding of like race, ethnicity and culture is very different from like when Wuthering Heights was being written. So, you know, we would consider Irish people to be white nowadays, but that's not necessarily true for all of history. And they were often like excluded and mistreated by the English. So it's not like impossible that Heathcliff could be Irish. I just feel like I think his character relies on like, even when he doesn't know anything about his background, characters are like, you are different from us somehow. So I've always interpreted Heathcliff as being someone who is not white, but like has been forcibly distanced from his family and his heritage and sort of like only has the trauma of racism and not like the joys of culture or familial connections. Yeah, exactly. It's not like a theory that cannot be argued. Like if you want to make the argument that Heathcliff is Irish, you can make it. I just personally do not think it is the most interesting way or worthwhile way to explore his character. And so I am glad that that was not the background that was picked in this book. Uh, I really liked that this book actually does pick a definitive answer for Heathcliff's face while also exploring Indian culture, the diaspora experience, the fact that British history is not always about white people or only about white people, and also the history of British colonialism and the East India Company. One of the few things that we do know about Heathcliff's background in the book is that he is from Liverpool, which according to my professor, whose word I will take on this because she is much smarter than me, uh, would have been some kind of hint to readers at the time that Heathcliff was probably either not born in England or had parents who were not British because Liverpool was like a big port city. So people like from South Asia and Africa would have been traveling there and doing trade. So that's kind of supposed to be, I believe, a hint that like he has some kind of foreign background. But we don't actually know what it is. And in this version, Tasha Suri does pick like a definitive background, which is that his father was a Lascar sailor from South Asia. And so in Liverpool, Heathcliff falls in with a group of other young immigrants, such as an escaped slave, a young girl from Ireland, a Lascar community that he ends up discovering. And so he kind of discovers this community of people that he had unexpected solidarity with. And I really enjoy that this was a historical fiction piece that actually explores the existing community of people of color who lived in Britain in the 18th century, because they did exist. Britain was not only white back then. Like, as long as people have been able to travel from country to country, countries have therefore not been all one race. And so I really appreciated this was a book that kind of like dug into sections of history that are not really talked about that much or even acknowledged very much, but very much did exist. So I liked that a lot. I think we're probably gonna get into spoiler territory soon or to like properly explore some of the interesting twists and turns this book took. Does that make sense, Lulu? Yeah, I think we already talked a fair amount of spoilers in regards to Black Springs. We can also talk about spoilers. Yeah, well, in this case, there are like a couple like actual interesting plot twists that they did. So at the start of this novel, Kathy is pretty much ignorant about her family's history. 
She knows that her father was in India and worked for the East India Company before moving to Yorkshire, but she doesn't really know the specifics of that or like the circumstances regarding her birth and family. And she and her brother Hindley both pass as white and she remembers both her parents as white because she has a stepmother. So she doesn't really question this, but Heathcliff is aware that the two intra children are actually of Indian descent like himself and kind of recognizes himself in them. It's also a little dangerous because like, not dangerous for them, like but the parents think that Heathcliff is sort of like a dangerous person to take into their household because he sort of raises questions about like, where is he from? Then where were you from? Oh, he kind of looks like your children and like pokes holes in like this lie that they've been trying to tell that Kathy and Hindley are both completely white and British when in fact their mom was from India. So um, over the course of the novel, Kathy learns that her mother and Hindley's mother was not a white English woman like she believed and was actually a Bengali mistress that her father had in India but left behind there. In addition to a brother they had who could not pass as white which was such a tragic plot twist that it truly made me lose my mind because in the original Wuthering Heights, like you said, when we were talking about Black Spring, Heathcliff is named for Kathy's dead brother. And the fact that it brought in the fact that Kathy used to have a brother, but doesn't anymore, and Heathcliff is sort of a replacement for that, I was just like, oh god, this author really knows this text so well, this is so good. Like, the tragic reveal that, like, this family has been divided because the father, like, only cares about his children who can pass for white, that he can pretend are, like, the perfect white British family, and that there is a whole family of like a mother and a son that were left behind on another continent it was just so deeply tragic, but also so fitting for a Wuthering Heights retelling. Yeah, you would think it would be hard to shock me when it comes to a retelling of a book that's over 200 years old, but I genuinely gasped when Hindi revealed that they had another sibling and that he was left behind in India because he couldn't pass as white and that the sibling was named Heathcliff, so that like the Heathcliff in this novel is a replacement for that child, basically. There's a really good sequence like closer to the end of this novel which is one that actually managed to make me feel a great deal of sympathy for Hindley, which is something that I thought was legitimately impossible because Hindley is a very unlikable and abusive figure in Wuthering Heights. But there's a sequence where he is talking to Kathy and he reveals that because he's a few years older than her, he actually remembers their birth mother and the fact that they were born in India and has known their secret all along. But due to like his father's shame over their background has been keeping this a secret the entire time, which was such a fascinating angle to take on this because Kathy herself has almost no memories of her family. Uh, from India, she's she seems like vaguely aware there's something in her family's background they're not talking about, but she's not old enough to remember any of it. And in this case, Hindley actually does know all of this and remember this and is like really burdened by the guilt of like knowing all these family secrets that his father thought were like deeply shameful and that he doesn't feel like he can tell anyone because specifically their father worked for the East India Company, which is like a horrible, awful colonial institution which is like, you know, Google it, you will learn all about them, but they are very bad and basically like an extension of British colonialism in India. And so he worked for them at the time that a famine happened around 1770, which the East India Company was somewhat responsible for and did not attempt to help people alleviate in any way. They, they caused it and they did not help it. And so his father does feel immense guilt over this, but has also never done anything to actually try to make amends. And so in this book, him taking in like this random child of a Lascar that he finds on the streets in Liverpool is like portrayed as their father's way to try to atone for like 
this huge sin that he carries around, this like awful thing, which he helped make happen and then did not try to help make better. The way that this novel engages with both kind of unanswered questions in Wuthering Heights and also uses real history to kind of feel the gaps in that was so, 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 so good because we are both people who study literature and history. So I really enjoy reading historical fiction when I am not reading epic fantasy novels, which is a lot of the time. <laughs> anyway, so I, I really enjoyed the way that this book looks at the question of where did Heathcliff come from and why did Mr. Earnshaw take him in and uses a real historical event to justify that because they never actually answer where Heathcliff came from or why he was taken in because Kathy's father dies fairly early on in the novel and that's why the family kind of descends into an even worse state in which Hindley becomes kind of like an abusive tyrant in the family and like I think if their father had lived it would have been a somewhat different situation and one of those is that we never really find out where Heathcliff comes from because he's really too young to remember his past and also deeply traumatized and Tasha Surrey's way of answering the question about where did Heathcliff come from and why was he taken in by this family and uses it to like fill in the gaps with like real history was like so good and so skillful and I was really obsessed with it like I think it was both a smart literary choice to explain why Heathcliff has come to this family who seemingly like he has no connection to but also I feel like it was a good way of like shining a light on real history that is maybe not necessarily talked about as much because like the idea that British history is not just confined to the United Kingdom and the British Isles, but like includes all of British colonialism and stuff like that. I don't know. I thought that was like really powerful on the way that this is very unfortunately a story which uses literature to explore real history and like looks at the like darkest, most horrific parts of British colonialism like the way that it's terrible on an individual level, like a family being torn about, but also terrible on a systemic level, like the British East India Company causing a famine and then doing nothing to avert it. And, you know, the dad feels kind of bad about it, but he didn't do anything to stop it. He just was like, oh, I feel bad. Maybe if I take this one orphan in, that will alleviate the deaths of like thousands of people. And I think just the way that real history and like kind of the empty spaces in Wuthering Heights are integrated together in this was just like so skillful and so well done. Yeah, I was obsessed with the way that this book manages to like perfectly come up with explanations that like so well fit in the gaps in the story while also bringing in real history. I have never specifically studied the Bengali famine of 1770 in my history classes, but I did take a class that was specifically on the history of British colonialism and imperialism. And it's like you said, a lot of people talk about British history like it is only things that happen in the British Isles, like only things that happen in London or Yorkshire or Liverpool or whatever, or like the War of the Roses or like, I don't know, World War II and like what they were doing with like the Blitz in London. But like, it's really not like you have to look at all of the stuff that was going on in British colonies and all the colonialism and imperialism and wars that were happening and like the way that Britain was like forcibly inserting itself into other countries and taking over in order to like properly understand the full history of the country. But I don't think that's something that people always talk about. And so the fact that this was like a fundamental part of the book was really compelling to me. 
And the specific explanation that Tasha Sari comes up with about Kathy's father's guilt over both abandoning his child and his mistress and also the famine that he helped cause being the reason he takes in Heathcliff is so fascinating to me because it so perfectly fills in this gap. You're like, why this child? Like, we know that this family has a gap in it because of the dead son, because they mentioned the dead son in like one line at the beginning of the book. But why did he take in this child who is so obviously foreign? Like, why did he just pick up this random child from the side of the road in Liverpool and be like, he's my son now? And it makes a lot of sense in this book. Like, you understand, like, oh, if you think about it in this way, and this history of colonialism and the East India Company is what is not in these gaps. It suddenly makes a lot of sense. Sometimes when I think people write retellings of classics that try to like answer questions in them that were not like properly answered in the original text, it can feel weird. But in this case, I was like, no, like this makes absolute sense. Like I could almost imagine this just like being in the original novel. I think where Heathcliff comes from in Wuthering Heights isn't really like a plot hole, but it's definitely something that like I can see people wanting to know the answer to. But I think, you know, for the purpose of the original text, I think the fact that Heathcliff essentially does not have any sense of where he comes from or who his family is, is like kind of part of his tragedy because he has no one except the people who've taken him in who are also like horrific to him. And so it's not like a flaw of the original Wuthering Heights that there is no answer as to where Heathcliff comes from. But I think this book is so smart about answering it because it's not just like, well, I want to know the answer, so I'm going to make something up. It's like, well, how does this text fit into the like broader global political context of it being written? And I don't know, it's just very good. And the way that it contextualizes Heathcliff and also makes it a different story. Like it's not just a retelling that's like, let me tweak one or two things. And then voila, we have a slightly different thing. Like it reshapes fundamentally the entirety of what the story is about. And I really want to talk about like how it deals with like violence and becoming a terrible person later. But like just the way that this answer is not just like plugging a gap in a text, but fundamentally changing the entire text is I think such a great example of what a retelling is because it has something to say. It's not just like, I like this story. I want to spend more time in this universe. It's like, I have an interpretation of this text that radically changes what the whole text is about, but tells a new interesting story that is also still in line with themes and characters of the original, if that makes sense. It just, it fits perfectly with the original story while also adding a whole new layer to it. And I think Tasha Sari does still keep some amount of ambiguity with regards to Heathcliff's specific background because when he is in Liverpool he does run into a woman who is kind of like an important figure in like a community of like diaspora people and Lascar sailors in the city and she kind of like has a lot of connections to people and knows a lot of things about like various families and their backgrounds and she's like I think I might know who your parents were it might have been this Lascar sailor and a white woman that he had a relationship with but I'm not entirely sure and you can't ask them because they're both dead but you do look sort of like them and you're the right age so I think you might be their child but I can't tell you for certain and there's no way that you can ever be sure all you have to go off of this is like what I think and what you remember of your family and I really like that because like I think the ambiguity of background of Heathcliff's background is possibly one of the most important things in the character and I really liked that Tasha Siri does answer the questions and she gives you an answer that fills in the gaps and gives you an answer 
that seems like it would fit, but you don't ever quite get the sense that Heathcliff is ever able going to like truly reconnect with his birth family because in this book they're dead. So he might know who they are and he thinks that he remembers something about them and something of their language and their culture and the relationship between his parents, but he doesn't really remember. And he's also forgotten so much of it that there's no way for him to ever be entirely sure. And I just really liked that because I think it was good that this book added in some like definite answers for like, here is what I think is in the missing parts, but also wasn't like so much so to like let you know every single aspect of it it's like maybe these are Heathcliff's parents maybe they weren't but like he has no way of actually knowing. I was also thinking when I was reading this book a couple weeks ago that in two semesters back to back I read and studied Wuthering Heights and then I read and studied Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Reese in another class which I actually didn't really like and that was probably because I did not read Jane Eyre first. I tried. I probably should have read Jane Eyre first. I tried so hard. I, 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 I should read about Sargasso Sea at some point. In my defense, this was a Gothic literature class about America, and Jane Eyre is not set in America. So we read Wide Sargasso Sea because it's set in the Caribbean, which I guess is close enough to America. Anyway, That's not America either. That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> pick it up with the professor. It was a good class. But I was just thinking about how I feel like because Wide Sargasso Sea is a text that has existed for a long enough time that, like, it has generated a lot of thoughts about race and colonialism in Jane Eyre, because uh, if you don't know, Wide Sargasso Sea is a prequel to Jane Eyre about Rochester's mad wife, whose name is Bertha Mason, but has a different name, which is Antoinette in the novel. And she is a white Creole woman. So she's French and lives in the Caribbean and her family made their money off of like plantations and stuff like that. Uh, and it's a, basically a prequel explaining how she met Rochester and like their relationship is sort of her deterioration into the mad wife in the attic of meet and Jane Eyre. But I was thinking about how I feel like because that has existed in the cultural consciousness for so long, there are more thoughts on how colonialism and Jane Eyre are like interact in the text and stuff rather than like how colonialism and race in Wuthering Heights exist. Because I think like looking at the text of Wuthering Heights, I feel like there's a lot of analyses about like abuse and romance and landscape, but like there hasn't been like a definitive like retelling of Wuthering Heights about race and colonialism the way that there is for Wide Sargasso Sea. And a controversial take, I thought this book was much better than Wide Sargasso Sea, which I did not actually really like, <laughs> um, even if it was interesting to study. But it just made me think about how valuable it is, I think, to have a text that is engaging directly with the themes of race and imperialism and colonialism and characters that are forcibly separated from their heritage and other by their race. And like how glad I am that this is a text that exists exploring these questions and aspects of characters in Wuthering Heights because it's like central to the text of Wuthering Heights but Wuthering Heights is a text that was like, you know, it was written by a white woman. There are limits to the ways that it can explore racism because Heathcliff ultimately becomes like the monster of the text. He is the bad guy. But I think this more modern text offers like a different nuanced look at the Heathcliff character. And I'm just like so glad that it exists from a literary perspective. And genuinely, I think you can study it in classrooms and I'll be so mad if no one ever does. They should. I would 100%. I would have had the best time reading this book and then talking to people about it in my Victorian literature class. 
And I, I really wish I was able to tell the professor about this, but unfortunately she's on sabbatical this year, so I cannot talk to her about this book, unfortunately. But, you know, I just, I think it fills in so many gaps in the story with like a really interesting perspective. Also, I have not read Wide Sargasso Sea, but the only other person I know who read it also didn't like it. So uh, I don't know if that says about the book or maybe people's just taste in books, but, you know, I did really enjoy this book. I honestly think that the scene later on in What Souls Are Made Of, where Hindley is talking about how he has memories of their mother that Kathy doesn't, and also the memories he has of like his father talking to him about the guilt that he caused was honestly like a highlight scene for me because I hate Hindley in Wuthering Heights. He's a terrible person and he's just like the worst. And he's just like an abusive patriarch kind of like embodies everything terrible about domestic abuse and patriarchal figures. But in this book, he's a bit younger than he is in a lot of Wuthering Heights. And I think he's given a lot more depth because you see that he's been burdened with what he thinks is like this really horrible, shameful family secret in that like his own background and like his own memories of his mother and his mother's culture are considered like awful, shameful secrets that have to be hidden. And the way that he was like taught by his father at a very young age, like never speak of this to anyone including his sister. So he just spends all of these years like keeping these memories and this knowledge like locked up inside himself and not speaking to anyone about it. It's just so interesting to me. It like adds a lot more depth to the character in a way that I thought was super interesting. I agree. Yeah, Heathcliff is like a character who has nuance and depth, even if he is often horrific in the original text. Henley is a character who is just bad and there is no nuance to him. He just sucks. He is physically abusive, he's tyrannical, he's a drunk, he gambles away the fortune, he's terrible to Kathy, he's terrible to his son, he's terrible to Heathcliff. He's just, he's bad all around in the original text. But like, there is kind of this element of like, Hindley is also someone who like, is kind of a victim of larger forces and also like of his father's shame and secrets in this. And that did add like a layer to the character that I wasn't expecting. Like you're not supposed to think that he's suddenly redeemable, but it just adds a layer to it. Like characters can be interesting and complex and layered without still being good people. And Hindley is like, he still sucks and he's a terrible brother and he's like runs an abusive household. But the fact that he's been like stewing in these things that are unsaid for so many years is also just so fitting for the Gothic genre because I think Gothic novels are so much about what is unsaid or undone and like things creeping in around the edge and secrets and the fact that Hindley is like, the only character alive in this novel who knows the truth for a while, like eats away at him. And that does add such an interesting layer to his character. If we're going to talk about the Gothic, does this mean that we can talk about the representation of ghosts in this novel? Oh, absolutely. I am so obsessed with the ghosts in this book. They are fantastic. They are amazing. So in the original Wuthering Heights, the ghosts are somewhat ambiguous. I would, well, there's really well, only one ghost, to be there's clear. There's two. There's Heathcliff at the end. Oh, you're right. I forgot. I wrote a whole paragraph of my essay about how people keep seeing Kathy and Heathcliff in memoirs and it freaks them out. Okay, fine. But for most of the novel, there was one ghost because Heathcliff is alive. And Lockwood has this dream of ghost Kathy, like, knocking on the window, being like, please let me in. If you know the Kate Bush song, Wuthering Heights, like it's based off of that scene. Like, I'm so cold, let me in. I'm obsessed with that scene. I am obsessed with the idea of a ghost who is not haunting a house, but is haunting the outside and wants to be let in because it is such an interesting subversion of how we usually think of ghosts haunting houses, but instead Kathy is haunting the whole world. Anyway, sorry. Uh, so, but it's also kind of ambiguous about whether this is an actual ghost because right before he went to sleep, Lockwood had been reading her diaries. So obviously Kathy as a character was like sort of on his mind. 
And also like ghosts just sort of, everyone is haunted in this novel, not necessarily by ghosts. They are haunted by traumatic histories and violence and regret and unsaid things and mistakes. Like characters are just haunted by the past. So the ghosts in Wuthering Heights are both literal, like there's a ghost tapping at your window being like, please let me in, I'm so cold. But also like Heathcliff is just generally haunted by the past and Kathy and like the love that he's lost, even if she's not a literal ghost. So there are literal ghosts in this, but they represent something very different, I would say, than what they do in the original text. I just want to say before we get into that too much, there is the really fantastic line in the original novel in which Kathy is dying and Heathcliff is like, don't die. And she's like, I am dying. You've killed me. And then he's like, then haunt me then. Don't they say that ghosts haunt their murderers? Uh, and I, that I'm always, I'm always a little obsessed with that line. There's so much. Oh, literally like top two gothic lines of all time like maybe top gothic line of all time you're like i killed you haunt me then arg so much it's so literally good. it's like oh they are so interesting and so terrible and so filled with passion and the way that like they cannot bear to be even apart and like he will take her even if she is just a ghost but also they have driven each other apart in life and like they want to be together in death because they cannot be together in life partially because of their actions anyway it's just so interesting ghosts i'm obsessed with them so in in what souls are made of, the ghosts are not necessarily like hauntings that represent people's past mistakes or like dead loved ones. I think the ghosts in this represent more of a forced detachment from one's birth family and culture, which is a really interesting way of looking at it that I'm absolutely obsessed with. Yeah, so Kathy has dreams a few times of a woman that she doesn't recognize and is confused by for a large part of the book, but then she eventually realizes is her mother and her mother is somehow dead. She's, she's never really like, she doesn't remember her mother from India. She's been living with like a white stepmother for her whole life. But once she realizes that the ghost haunting her is her mother, she's like, my mother is dead, but like a mother and a daughter can never truly be separated. Like she has come across continents to haunt me. And her mother represents like the past that she does not know. And the fact that Kathy was raised and sort of forcibly assimilated into being like a perfect English lady. She doesn't know her birth mother's language, her culture, her religion. She's been like told that she is white and British and that is it and to never even bring up the fact that her father used to work in India. But like the ghost of her mother is like still following her as a reminder of this. And I think the ghosts in this are like much more literally like definitely there than they are in the original Wuthering Heights because I think like Lockwood has a reason to possibly dream about the ghost of Kathy because he knows vaguely that she exists. But Kathy in this novel just doesn't know about her mother. So I think like the ghosts in this are kind of more literal, but they're also still a metaphorical representation. Yeah, I think the ghosts in this are portrayed as somewhat more literal than in Mothering Heights, but it's still fairly ambiguous. Like there are no scenes of someone like walking down a hallway and seeing a ghost, but they're still very much there in the book. There's a part where uh, Kathy and Hindley like bury their mother's jewelry which their father kept with him for like all these years in the Yorkshire Moor as like a way to kind of try to get rid of it and like hide their past and get rid of it once and for all but then Kathy digs it up again at the end of the novel and it's in a different place it's placed like the jewelry would have been on the body of a woman wearing it and so there's all these moments where it's like something supernatural is happening at the edge of the novel and you don't quite see it but you know it's there there's also a part where this book constantly circles back to the idea of forgotten languages and like can you ever forget a language that you were taught as a child because Kathy 
has this memory of like knowing certain words in another language that is not English, but she doesn't know what language and she doesn't know exactly where she learned them. And she can't even really remember what they mean, but she does know that she knows these words and she's never really sure where she could have gotten these words from because no one in her family taught them to her as far as she remembers. And then after she learns more about the fact that her mother was Bengali and the fact that she was taken away from her as a very young child, she kind of realizes like my mother's ghost taught me these words. She was trying to make sure that I didn't forget my native tongue because there's no other way that I could have learned these words. So it's kind of like ghosts exist but only in these ambiguous ways of like the ghosts somehow teach you something about yourself that you didn't know. It's the ghosts as the unsaid things and the unsaid things are literally a language that the characters have been forced to forget because there is this thread that goes throughout the whole book of Kathy and Heathcliff forgetting languages and words that they knew as a child and being haunted by this absence. So in the original Wuthering Heights, Heathcliff is brought to Wuthering Heights and they say that he kind of speaks gibberish and eventually he learns English and stops speaking this and there's no mention of him ever having an accent or speaking a foreign language and we don't know what the language that he was speaking in Wuthering Heights was but in this it's like actually it was a real language that Heathcliff was speaking and that was the language that his father taught him and he has sort of forgotten it because he's been disconnected from his birth family but he and Kathy like both sort of share these words that they're like, we don't know where they came from, but somehow we know these, we know what they mean, and we have a sense that they're important to us in our past. So just like the idea that the Gothic is kind of about like unsaid things and secrets that cannot stay buried that begin like representing themselves through ghosts, but also the unsaid things are like actually a language that people have been forced to forget. It was just like, ooh, the parallels. I just really liked the representation of ghosts in this novel as kind of haunting a family with secrets that they refuse to speak of and kind of representing the culture and family that they were disconnected or like forcibly uh, removed from is so interesting to me because there's, it kind of ties into the way that the characters don't know anything about their background and that there's no one left who can really teach them about it except the ghosts of the past which is still around in some form and like doesn't want them to forget but like is it enough for them to know that like Kathy doesn't know where she learned these other words for a really long time and she's not even sure if they're a real language until she eventually does realize that it was her mother who taught them to her and therefore it must be some kind of real language and these must be like a real word that she spoke as a child and it's just such an interesting idea to have the ghosts be a metaphor for like your culture which you were forcibly removed from. I also think this book is a lot happier in terms of the ending than Black Spring is and that is in line with the themes because Black Spring is just kind of a book about brutal patriarchal oppression. It's about tragedy. It's about like toxic doomed love. But I think what souls are made of because it very specifically is exploring Wuthering Heights through the lens of race and imperialism. I think it worked for me that it has a much happier ending because Heathcliff is offered the chance to earn money in a very terrible on like bad way, but he kind of refuses that chance and he goes back to Wuthering Heights and he and Kathy reunite and then they kind of run off together with the implication that like they're going to go to Liverpool and sort of join the community there and try to build a life that where like they can be authentic about who they are and like not have to feel like they are outsiders because of their race. And Heathcliff never really has the turn into the like, monstrous figure that he is in the later half of Wuthering Heights because 
he rejects that. I think he grapples a lot with feeling like he is a bad person and that Kathy is like his lifeline to being good. Like, I think it's in this one where he, there's a bit where he saves Harriton and then is like, I could have let him die. Maybe I would have, except that I knew it would like make you sad, Kathy. I knew I have to save him, but like, because of you, and I feel like I'm not a good person at heart. And he grapples with that so much in this, but in the end, like he takes a turn for the good instead of the bad. And they kind of break the cycle and move on. And they leave behind Wuthering Heights and go to Liverpool, like the claustrophobic world they're trapped in, they are leaving it behind. And I think sometimes when you read a retelling of a tragedy and it's happy, you're like, well, where all the themes go? It's supposed to be messy and sad. But I think for this, because it's exploring characters pushing back against colonialism and trying to connect with the past that they have been torn away from, the fact that it's like them being like, we will not let this story make us into a tragedy. We will not become monsters, even though that's what other people around us want, was very satisfying and worked really well. Like it, it's, it's a different story than Wuthering Heights in so many ways. And it's kind of like an alternate version of like, if things could have been happier, many things would have had to be different, but maybe the characters could have like pushed back against the tragedy. So I think that's interesting. Yeah, what I think is interesting about the ending of this book is that you can see the turns that the characters would take to become the versions of themselves who eventually end up as terrible adults in the original book. Like you mentioned, there is a part where Heathcliff like uh, comes to the attention of like a terrible rich white man who is like looking for men to work for him and do like some kind of terrible business presumably involving like colonialism and violence and other stuff. And that would be a way for Heathcliff to become extremely rich and powerful. And this is presented kind of like as if he accepted this offer, it would turn him into the person that he is in the second half of the original novel. Like this is perhaps the way that Heathcliff became rich and terrible. But in What Souls Are Made Of, we see him deliberately turn away from that path because in Liverpool, he has fallen in with a group of other young immigrants or like children of immigrants and the Lascar community there and has therefore like found that he feels valued as a person and that he doesn't need like the approval and money and connections of rich terrible white people to have like a meaningful life with connections but you can see like if he had not fallen in with those people and if he had not tried to discover his background then you can see he would have accepted that offer and that is where the Heathcliff and the original novel would have gone on to become a terrible person. Or we see Kathy in her own plotline where she's trying to figure out if she should marry Edgar Linton or not. The discovery of her own Bengali background and her family's hidden secrets is kind of like the last straw for her and is the reason that she eventually ends up turning down that life and leaving. But if she didn't have that background and did feel like she belonged in some way at Wuthering Heights, then she would have said yes and married Edgar Linton. And so Heathcliff would have gone off to become a rich and terrible man and Kathy would have ended up becoming married and trapped in a different way. And so you can see both of these paths are like very clearly laid out, but because of the choices that the author made with how these characters' backgrounds fundamentally alter them, they end up not going down those paths. And so it doesn't feel like a turn away from an interesting cathartic tragedy to me like it doesn't feel like a cop-out to not have the ending be sad it kind of feels like if these characters backgrounds had shaped them in this way and they had like these kind of connections to each other or like this kind of experience instead then things would not have turned out the way they did it actually feels very satisfying as a happy ending because you can see the exact points 
in the story in which the tragic ending would have come from, but also the ways that these characters being different in this retelling means that they don't make those choices. Yeah, like there's always a point at which something in a tragedy could maybe not go that way. And you're always like, oh God, don't do that. But of course you're going to do that. But in this, the characters have a choice and they don't take the worst, most unhappy choice there is. And they kind of decide to like strive for a better future and to leave Wuthering Heights and go to Liverpool. But I think also it doesn't exactly like wrap everything up with a little bow on it. Like Kathy's mother is dead. She lost like the years she should have had with her family. She has no idea where her older brother is. Heathcliff's parents are likely dead and he still spent years living with the Earnshaws as sort of like a way to alleviate their father's guilt. And like both of them still had like bad abusive childhoods where like there were so many secrets and like British colonialism is still a thing. The world isn't magically perfect, but like they're trying to kind of carve out their own little space of happiness within it to go to Liverpool to find a community of people who they can really belong with to like love each other and not feel like they have to be torn apart by society. But like there is still, it's a bittersweet ending in some way because it's like they are now aware of what has been taken from them, but that doesn't mean they can get it back. There is still the tragedy of like, we're not ignorant of what we've lost, but we have still lost it. And I think that adds like enough of a sad edge that it still feels like it's not like, oh, now it's Wuthering Heights, but happy. It's like, it's Wuthering Heights, but what if these characters were not as terrible as they are in the original one? And I don't know, it's just like, I can get walked the line of like a happier version of a sad story without feeling trite. It feels like it really has something to say about how characters in history could push back against colonialism and still like live ideally happily lives in communities that value them. So I don't know, like it, it works for me. Basically, I really loved this book because of all of the connections to real history that it made. I think definitively picking a racial background for Heathcliff and giving Kathy a somewhat different one as well and then tying it into real history allowed for like a really interesting, rich and fascinating exploration of parts of the book that are not explored very much and the connections to like real colonial history that are present within the actual novel but are not like really touched on that much but in, in this case are given like center stage to explore all of these parts of history and the history of colonialism and the history of immigration in England and the history of like diaspora communities coming together and so I think that in the end like the choice to kind of give these characters the background that they have and then explore it a lot more makes the whole book like really rich and interesting it feels like you're looking at it from like a slightly sideways look that nonetheless makes the whole thing totally different and it was just really fascinating to me and I had such an interesting time reading it and seeing how Tasha Suri was reinterpreting this history. Also the gothic atmosphere and like the intense character emotions of the original Wuthering Heights I still feel like translated really well to this like we've talked a lot about the way that it engages with real history and like racism and biracial identity but also I do think it still like nails the like you're hanging out on the Yorkshire boars and they're like very stormy and like tempestuous and that mimics like your stormy and tempestuous emotional relationships. Like that part was nailed pretty well, I think. So I think what I have to say mostly is that I really enjoyed both of these books because the original Wuthering Heights has like a special place in my heart as a classic novel about a bunch of people who are all really awful in fascinating ways. And I think both of these books managed to capture that original spirit in a way that I think can be really tricky to do with retellings. I think Wuthering Heights is a very hard book to retell 
because there is so much specific stuff going on about the characters' circumstances and lives. But I also think that both of these books managed to absolutely nail that while also adding some like really interesting spins on the original story and the authors kind of adding in their own thoughts on the characters. So I just like overall have a lot of thoughts about Wuthering Heights and then these books were also written by people who also had a lot of thoughts about Wuthering Heights and that was very fun to read. I think my main thought on this is that whenever I think about the use of ghosts as representations of lost family and culture and what souls were made of, I must lie on the floor to recover. It was just, I love when ghosts represent the past. Anyway, I, we are both big enjoyers of gothic lit and have many thoughts on like the gothic and stuff, which is why we were so excited to do an episode in Wuthering Heights, because occasionally like going on car rides with her family would just kind of turn into an impromptu podcast episode in Wuthering Heights. <laughs> but I just think these were so good because these texts both understand that Wuthering Heights is not a romance. It is a novel about like terrible circumstances and passion that emerges from it, but like that is very twisted and upsetting. And I think they just really managed to nail the original heart of these novels while putting a unique spin on it. And that's really what I look for in retellings. So it was just very satisfying. This also made me realize that I really need to watch like the one and only Wuthering Heights movie where Heathcliff is not played by a white person. I don't remember the director, but I think it came out about 10 years ago and he's played by a black actor. I would really like to watch that at some point. It was just like so appalling to me. There are like a billion movies at Wuthering Heights and Heathcliff is white and all of them. Like, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but like, come on guys. Well, I will amend that at some point by going to watch the one where he is not white. Also, Jane Eyre lovers, please do not hate on me, but I do think this book is better than Jane Eyre and I stand by that. I think ultimately in life, you're either a Wuthering Heights person or a Jane Eyre person. And based off of this episode, it's probably pretty easy to figure out which ones we are. With that, we've been Never the Twins Shall Meet. If you would like to keep up with our further podcasting misadventures, you can find us on Instagram at NeverTheTwinsShallMeet, on Twitter at NeverTwinsCast, our website is NeverTheTwinsShallMeet.com, and you can email us at NeverTheTwinsShallMeet at gmail.com. Thanks for listening!